Welcome back to another episode of the Next Frontier Podcast. Today I'm here with Gopika Senthil Kumar. I'm so grateful to have Gopika on. She's an amazing friend. She's a wonderful person, super sociable, entrepreneur, engineer, and a recent UW grad. And next year, Gopika is going on to do her MD-PhD. Hyper unique. I know two MD-PhDs, and Gopika is one of them. And I am so excited to hear from Gopika about her MD-PhD, how she's going, how she got to being an MD-PhD, the application process, and also a handful of her other experiences at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, ranging from speaking events like TED and TEDx, all the way through speaking at graduation. So without further ado, Gopika, I'd love to dive in and ask you a question. So how does one come into the University of Wisconsin-Madison and then go through their coursework and actually get to the point where they're going to an MD-PhD program? And before that, maybe give us a little background on what is an MD-PhD program. Absolutely. Well, first of all, Max, thank you for having me on. Um, You're so sweet. And um, MD-PhD, you can summarize it in the best way of someone that does research but also treats patients. So... Um, Most MD-PhDs go into academic institutions where they see patients um, and they have some amount of clinical time, but a majority of their time actually goes into research. Um, And a lot of that research is usually translational. So the idea of saying, can we look at drugs and therapies and devices that we can directly use in clinical trials and someday bring to patients? Um, So that's kind of the whole life goal of most MD-PhDs, I would say. And that's, uh, that's exactly what drew me or drew me to that career path as well. At UW, when I first joined, I definitely thought I was just going to go into product design. I loved engineering, um, which is why I did biomedical engineering in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started Insight Wisconsin here with that goal in mind. Since I love product design, it was a product design organization, so it fit right in. Um, but I found myself being more motivated in my projects based on the people it helps rather mm-hmm. than just the pure idea of designing something new in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that what really, at the end of the day, gave me my passion and my mm-hmm. drive came down to the patients and the people that I would help. And so I thought, you know, why don't I try shadowing a bit more and see um, where no, that takes Shadowing me. doctors. Shadowing, shadowing doctors, okay. yes, yes. So I actually quit some of the research labs where I was very pure engineering um, and things like that at the Internet of Things lab. That was one of the things I was involved with. And instead moved on to Dr. Kimple's lab, who is an MD-PhD. So I was like, you know, I'll shadow him, do some research in his lab, and see see what I like. Um, And shadowing him in the clinics really solidified why we were doing the research in the first place and Mm -hmm. why we needed things. And I think regardless of how the research went, all the failed projects and failed experiments later, I was still motivated to come back the next day. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I knew um, that I couldn't just pick treating patients because I would always be like, hey, there's something more I want to do. Mm -hmm. But I couldn't just do research because I need... I need that patient interaction to feel motivated and to feel passionate about my research and to almost guide my research. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's kind of how I ended up saying, you know, I'll do both. I I would love to treat patients. Um, It'd be an honor, and I would love to do research as well. And then in, what, eight years, you'll be one of the most qualified people in America? (laughs) Something like that, something like that. Yes, it is um, usually a seven- to eight-year program. Uh, So we do two years of the core curriculum Uh of medical school, dive into our PhD for four years. Um, It's almost like an accelerated PhD. And is that concurrent to your your MD program, or is that... 
do you take a gap from your MD program to work on your PhD? It's almost like a gap from your MD program. Okay. So a lot of these dual programs, when you get admitted, they will have monthly seminars or some kind of courses where you go back and see patients or you're constantly reminded of your MD side. Okay. But for those four years, you're main goal is to complete your PhD. So it is almost like you're taking a break from your MD curriculum to do a PhD. Mm-hmm. But it's a good stopping point because your first two years of medical school, um, at least in most most schools, is classes, just like undergrad. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you take your step one. And then the last two years is your clinical rotation. So after you're done with What's your- step one? Step one is your first uh, exam that you have to take. It's kind of like your MCAT and GRE to get into schools, but step one is more in the path to accreditation. Okay. I said that word wrong. Um, But, yeah, it's how you you have to pass step one, step through, step three, and do well um, to say, hey, you're a legit doctor. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And it determines where you get into residency. And and normal PhD programs are six years? Normal PhD programs do take about six years. And MD programs? MD programs take about four years. But since we do classes as part of our MD anyway, they kind of clunk it all together and make an eight-year combined program. Fun. Yes. Okay. Cool. So there's a lot to unpack there. Absolutely. First, I'd love to just backtrack a little bit and talk about product design. Yeah. And you said you came in wanting to do product design. Could you tell us a little bit about what is it about product design that got you motivated to be an engineer, get into biomedicine, etc. Absolutely. I think what excites me about product design is that you get to make something that doesn't exactly exist mm-hmm. in that form yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably why I'm so excited about research as well. It's mm-hmm. um, I find it I don't know, exciting and interesting. Forefront of innovation. Forefront of innovation, exactly. <laughs> um, but when I first joined here, do you remember when Intro to 160 was a class that we all had to take as an undergrad? Yeah, so the Intro to Engineering class is Intro to 160. Whenever you come in as a freshman to the University of Wisconsin, you take an Intro to Engineering class to get your hands dirty. Exactly. And in that class, you do a project. So it's usually a client that proposes a problem and says, hey, help me solve it. Mm-hmm. Um, and our project was a 3D clinostat where we had to figure out a way to create microgravity in the center of a device. Um, and working on that project, it's something that doesn't exactly exist out there, but um, a researcher needed it to what, study plants in space. What's a clinostat? Uh, a clinostat is just a fancy device that creates microgravity in the center. So it's okay. think of something that spins in all three directions so that if this was particularly for growing plants. So the plant in the middle will get its gravity vector really confused because it's spinning in all directions. And if you make the spins just perfectly equal, its gravity vectors, you know, your typical math, all of them cancel out. So it's a way to stimulate space without taking things into space. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know anything more about it, so don't ask me more. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. But, um, don't worry. It's okay. But... Um, that was one of the first projects that really got me into product design to begin with um, because we knew absolutely nothing about it. But as freshmen, we still had the opportunity to dive in. And had you done product design before you came to the university? Like, Did you do any engineering clubs or, or product clubs in high school? Honestly, no. In high school, I was a big mock trial person. Uh, So I competed in mock trial. I did Junior Statesman of America. So very different experiences in high school. Um, But I come from a family of engineers. So that's kind of how I chose to go into engineering. I just took one computer science class and a Project Lead the Way class. Um, But that's not really product design. It's Do you know those like marble makers and things they have you build? 
It's like yeah. the robot that you. I don't know exactly what it's called, but like they're first robotics or like the Lego 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 Mindstorm set. Yeah, kind of like a okay. kind of like the Lego ones, um, but you can program without having to code. It's all like a drag and drop kind of code. Got it. Okay. So the scratch programming. Yes, yes, yes. Cool. So, oh. the, so I guess the university as a inspirational resource through those Intro to Engineering 160 classes, it did its job. Yes. And helped you get inspired to go into product design, and then from there into biomedicine, and then from there into your MD PhD route. Absolutely. Very cool. Yes. Okay. And then from there, that also inspired you to start Insight. Is that correct? Absolutely. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about what Insight is and what the mission is, how it got started, yeah. etc.? So the Intro to 160 class we were talking about actually got canceled the year after I joined. So now they have programs or classes you can take, but mm-hmm. it's only a subset of incoming freshmen that can take it. Mm-hmm. Um, and my co-founder, Ethan, and my other friends and I thought about it and we said, hey, this has been such an important part in our career decisions and what really inspired us mm-hmm. in engineering to begin with. Um, and we thought we should provide that opportunity to everyone. Mm-hmm. And not we wanted to go a step beyond and say it's not just for engineers, but we want to give this opportunity to everyone on campus. Because in the real world, engineers don't just work in a little hub on their own. Mm-hmm. Everything they build is in collaboration with mm-hmm. absolutely everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wanted to kind of simulate that environment on campus um, I like to call it a safe zone where you can learn about product design, you can learn about engineering, you can learn about solving problems, but it's safe to fail there. You're not, you don't have venture capitalist money that you need to give back. You don't have anything at stake, and it's just a cool place to just learn and apply mm-hmm. and hopefully build your confidence to take it to the next step. So it's a great resource for people who want to get their hands dirty with making things to be around makers, learn more about making. Exactly, exactly. Cool. And I think one of the coolest parts about Insight is we said, you know, we really want to emphasize the idea of innovation. So we didn't want people to come in and say, hey, I need this one thing built. It already exists, but just make it cheaper for me. Mm-hmm. We wanted them to come in and say, here's an idea that's been lingering in my mind, but I just haven't had the resources at the time to explore it. So a lot of the times our projects don't really work because they're new ideas. You explore them. But when they do work, it's really exciting. So it's really getting people in the mindset of exploring new ideas, exploring new pathways with with what already exists. So there's two ways I'd lo- I'd love to bifurcate this a little bit. And then, yeah. uh, we talked to Taylor a few weeks ago on the podcast about, about something similar. Absolutely. About how to use the makerspace in this way. But but let's say that you have two groups of people. You have students who are coming in who want to learn more about making. Right. So that that's one one way that someone can utilize Insight as a resource. And then on the other side, you have people who want to get projects done or they want to have research done or they want to have their prototypes built. Yes. That's the might be the entrepreneur or the company, et cetera. So could you maybe describe how each of those parties could get involved with Insight and what the benefits are, what steps might be, who they should reach out to, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. So at every kickoff meeting, at every semester, we actually have our meeting divided up so mm-hmm. that both these people can propose their ideas. So. Before the meeting starts, we actually reach out to clients or we have a website, Mm insightwisconsin.org, where people can go online and just apply to say, hey, I have this cool idea. I would really love for a group in your organization to work on this. So that involves professors, outside companies, all of those people kind of filter through either that website or just personal connection with the executive board. And that's how we get those projects. We call Mm -hmm. those just client-based projects overall. And then at the meeting, we also have set time dedicated for students 
um, or professors, anyone that decides to attend that meeting, to come up and propose their own ideas. Mm. So they got on stage and they do an elevator pitch. So they get a minute, they explain their problem, what their grand idea is, and what their initial ideas are about going about solving that problem. Um, so that kind of is our way to cater to both those groups that you've been mm-hmm. talking about. And then throughout the semesters, we bring in mentors because groups that have clients already have someone that will keep them accountable and they mm-hmm. have mentors to guide them through. But it's for the group that proposed their own idea. Um, we wanted them to have the same amount of resources and also a push to say, you know, mm-hmm. I know you have exams, but get through it. Mm-hmm. So for that, we bring in mentors from companies like Design Concepts mm-hmm. um, who kind of serve um, as their standby client to help. Got it. So there's really three ways to intimate or four ways to intimately get involved with Insight. Yes. Join the executive board, join the Insight team. Yep. Join the Insight as a club, as a student, and start making things and working on a project. Yes. Sponsor a project or yes. be a client for a project, and then also become a mentor for a project. And Absolutely. Beautiful. And, and for potential sponsors or mentors who want to get involved, what does a typical sponsorship look like for Insight? Yeah, absolutely. So, Or I guess sponsors and clients. Like if someone wants to have their project worked on, what does that, that look like? Yeah. So a lot of it, honestly, is very flexible just because of the wide variety of projects we work on. But for most clients and sponsors, at least the base level is they, they cover all the material fees. Mm-hmm. So um, at this point, we don't really charge them anything to join Insight. Mm-hmm. Um but we do ask that they cover all their material fees and have a dedicated time. We, so be available on email to reply at least once or twice a week, mm-hmm. more as it gets closer to the final deliverable time, be able to meet at least a couple times a month so the students feel involved and they're moving forward in their project. So honestly, what we ask for is not really money, although that would be really nice for people to donate so we can mm-hmm. have events with an insight, but it's more a commitment of time and mentorship, um, which is what we value most. So if anyone's interested in sponsoring or being a client, they could go online and reach out to us, Mm -hmm. and we will work with them to make sure it works with their schedule, it makes sense for the type of project that they're Mm -hmm. proposing, Mm -hmm. um, and make sure that it's a good package for everyone around. Cool. So I have two more insight questions. Absolutely. Some of the other extremely interesting stuff that you've done while you've been on campus. (laughs) Sounds good. So first, did you, you built this when, three years ago? Yes. Wow, I feel old. That's not that old. <laughs> uh, so, so three years ago you built this, and when you were building it, did you model it off of other organizations like this at other universities? Yeah, so when we first got started, um, I think our biggest inspiration was Intro to 160, and then we just brainstormed ideas and kind of figured out our own pathway to it. Um, but in the process of building it, and within a year, I met... Um, the director of MIT's Integrated Design and Management Lab. Mm. And a lot of what they were doing was a master's program that paralleled some of the ideologies of Insight. So we did, once we got uh, around to meeting him, tried to borrow some ideas and say, you know, how do we make this part more successful? How do we make students more motivated? So we borrowed a few ideas there. But a lot of it, honestly, we followed the Insight process ourselves. We brainstormed ideas. We said, we wrote down one big mission and said, okay, this is our mission how can we go about it? Mm-hmm. And so we just had team brainstorming sessions to come up with a structure that would make sense. Cool. So, yeah. so that that MIT integrated design program, yeah, into the integrated design and management ma- uh, masters, yeah. correct? Okay. Yes. So that program actually came up in a conversation with Lennon that I had on the last episode of the podcast. Yes. Um, which will be out by the time that this episode's out. So you should go back and listen to that if you haven't yet for more context. But you worked closely with with that 
uh, director of that program for a research internship over a summer, correct? I did. Cool. I did. So we'll come back to that in one second. Okay. First, uh, I, uh, the second question with Insight is, so when it comes to sustainability, how did you forward plan and set up the org so that as you're graduating and you're leaving to go to your MD, PhD, how did you set up the organization so that you can easily hand it off and it can live on way beyond you? Absolutely. So... About a year ago, so throughout my senior year, um, I've actually not served as its president or on its executive board at all. So the co-presidents and all of us stepped down, and we had interviews, and we picked a new board to come up, and we um, drafted some bylaws on how to get the new board up so we have motivated people on board. Um, And they've been running Insight all year. So one of our biggest goals behind that uh, particular structure is that we would still be here on campus if something were to go wrong, if they needed something, if they needed more resources, if something that we did was not transparent enough for the next board to pick up, we'll still be here to provide whatever answers or structure uh, might be needed. But um, I think that so far has worked really well because not only does it allow the organization to stay sustainable, and we hope that future presidents will continue to do the same and before they graduate at least spend a semester passing it on to the new board Um, but it also brings new light into insight that's one of the reasons i was hesitant in answering how sponsors and clients should come about because the new board probably have their own ideas about that Mm -hmm. and we want fresh light to come in and just as students innovate we want the organization itself to innovate that's beautiful Um, yes and take on ideas of new new presidents and new executive board members Awesome. Yeah. And then in terms of the makerspace, because the makerspace was actually established after Insight was started. So did Insight influence how the makerspace at the university formed? So for context, Insight started in 2016? Yes. 2016. Yes. So Insight starts in 2016, and then the makerspace opens in fall 2017 or summer 2017. Yep. So did you have any influence in that in that process? Did they come to you and say, hey, you're running this maker club on campus. What would you like to see in a makerspace? How did that, that, that collaboration work? Yeah, so the first time Lennon was on campus, he actually organized a focus group of sorts. Lennon being the makerspace director. The makerspace director, sorry. But um, when after that focus group, I actually went up and talked to him, and I said, hey, we're running Insight. And he said, oh, yeah, that's so cool. Be on board. So from the day, from the first day when the makerspace was still being constructed, he pulled me on board and I was um, an employee that helped hire the shop manager and I had a lot of um, say, including other students from other organizations on campus who were also hired on. Um, And we were all asked about, you know, what policies make sense for the makerspace? Do we allow personal projects? What do these, what should they be useful for? Um, Who do we let in? How do we make sure that non-engineering students can use it as well. So all of these key questions about policies, we had a say in it. So I, even though Insight as an organization didn't necessarily influence it, I think me being a part of both, I definitely brought in a lot of ideologies of Insight, the interdisciplinary collaborative mm. atmosphere, the idea of being allowed to not just do school projects, but being allowed to explore and try something new and having a group of students or mentors on staff here who can help push those ideas forward for students and things like that. Um, so it's been, it's actually been really fun in the sense that the makerspace reflected a lot of those ideas really well. Very cool. So you, yeah. you really efficiently and effectively had a vision where you wanted to bring maker culture to campus. Absolutely. And then you, you, you started Insight, you had, were entrepreneurial, you started Insight, and then you leveraged 
relationships and connections by meeting Lennon and approaching him and going up to him to get involved with the makerspace to further execute your vision. Absolutely. Absolutely love it. Thank Very you. Very cool. Cool. So, so that's a great transition. So you, you start Insight and then you go to work at the makerspace. Yep. And maybe because we've, we've talked about the makerspace a bit on the show already. So why don't you just give us a one-sentence summary? What is the University of Wisconsin-Madison makerspace? So the makerspace is just a hub of all different type of prototypical equipments like mm-hmm. 3D printers, laser cutters, um, a place where you can come with an idea and say, I'm going to try to build this with the cheapest, fastest materials possible. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to test out my ideas and then go from there. So I think that's how I would describe this space. Awesome. And your role here was you were a student employee. Gopika and I actually worked on the, the first Makerspace student team. Yep. Uh, fun facts. <laughs> so you worked at, you, you, but you were here before I was and you start, you actually got the Makerspace started. Like you said, you went to, to find Carl and get the infrastructure really set up and that groundwork set up. So how did you enjoy that experience? What did you take away from it? What did you learn? Yeah, that experience was actually really fun because when we were hiring Carl, it was all these people with a lot of technical knowledge, deans, um, people that you would think are qualified to be on that interview committee to begin with. And then it was me asking him questions alongside them. And it was really interesting how much the makerspace weighed my opinion in as well because I came in with a goal that, you know, a shop manager that has a lot of technical skills, great, we would love it, but will they help students? Do they want to work with students? Do they want to work on their own project or do they want to mentor students? Mm -hmm. Um, Was kind of the perspective I brought to the table there. Um, And that was a really neat experience seeing that everyone valued that perspective even though it was different from everyone else that was on Mm -hmm. the committee to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, So... I think that was one of the really cool experience, um, being on an interview community to begin with. Um, and the second component definitely is being able to pick out equipment and say, these are potential policies that make sense. Um, as much as with Insight, we build the board and we said, here are the bylaws, this is how the Insight would run. It was just for us. It was a small student org. There was not millions of dollars involved in it. But the makerspace has money flowing in and there's... I felt like every decision we made had a bigger impact and people we had to answer to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just a really cool experience being a part of that. It was almost like you're building up your own company of sorts and influencing how it gets run. So it was a, it was a cool. nice experience in undergrad. So who else was on that selection board? It was a bunch of deans. Could you tell us a little more about what the demographic of that committee was? Yeah, before? yeah. So it was... Lennon, it was a shop manager from uh, our team shop where they have all kinds of lathe and mill and more um, hardcore engineering equipment, equipment, I'd say. And there were, wow, it's been a while, uh, a couple of professors, um, and I want to say one dean on that. Okay. But don't quote so me. A high profile. Yes, high yes. High profile selection committee. Yes. And how did you find your way onto this committee? Honestly, Lennon just asked if I would be a part of it, and he said, hey, we want a student voice on here, um, probably for those exact reasons that we represent Mm -hmm. students, which Mm -hmm. is what the space is for. Um, And it was just, honestly, most things in my life, they just, I happen to be there at the right time, (laughs) right place at the right time in that sense. Um, Lennon just came up to me and said, hey, would you want to do this? And I'm like, yeah, sounds so fun. Cool. So you go from Makerspace Selection Committee to working at the Makerspace, and then we meet. Yeah. Um, and then we start hanging out, we talk, and then I tell you that I'm having this event called Next Frontier, 
and I say, hey, Gopika, you're really articulate and you're smart and you have a lot of experiences. I'd love it if you, so could, if you could come present. Uh, and we'll, we'll put this audio from Gopika's presentation at our Next Frontier event onto the podcast as a, as a standalone episode. But I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit. First of all, could you summarize some of the speaking experiences that you've had at the UW and just in your undergrad experience? Yeah. Because I haven't met too many people who have had as extensive of speaking experiences as you have. Absolutely. I think the majority of my speaking experiences were uh, initially at research venues. So I was at the American Association of Cancer Research Mm -hmm. presenting a poster. So it's not as much of a big audience presentation, um, but there you're presenting to a lot of really qualified researchers. A lot of MD. A lot of MD PhDs (laughs) who know your research better than you. Um, So a big chunk of my speaking experiences in general fall under the research category. Um, But some of the really cool ones would be uh, my TEDx talk, where I was invited to reflect from a student's perspective on education for the future, Um, given my experience with Insight and some of the things where we looked at more innovative curriculums. I was able to speak on that Mm -hmm. at TEDx. And of course, you invited me to speak at your conference. Um, And the summer before I joined here, I was given the Philanthropic Youth Award at Milwaukee for my work with United Way. And I was, um, it was really fun. I had to United Way? United Way, they're an umbrella organization that basically fundraise for like hundreds of local nonprofits. Okay. So, they basically take advantage of the economy of scales, and they take care of a lot of the fundraising, a lot of collecting money, basically, and then source it out to all of these smaller groups that can focus on their initiatives in health, income, and education. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And do you have to apply for grants from them, or do you just sign up and say, hey, I'm a member, and people will just designate funding for me? I actually am not sure how organizations become a part of United Way, but they already have an umbrella. By the time I joined them, they already had about 200 organizations within the greater Milwaukee and Waukesha County area that they were partnered with, where they were giving money, and they also do their own initiatives as well. But that's a good question. We can link to it in the show notes. Absolutely. Okay. So United Way and and continue on from there with the speaking experiences. Yeah. so, um, So in high school, I started this... Donate Your Age to United Way campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a fundraising campaign for that organization. I figured it was something that most people could relate to because I'm not picking one cause, but mm-hmm. rather supporting all local causes mm-hmm. by donating to United Way. And um, from there, I had to propose that campaign to the campaign cabinet of United Way, which was one of the most intimidating things I've done because the leaders of that cabinet was, at that time, the CEO of Freedert Hospital, which is like, that's where I'm going to medical school now, so that's kind of cool. Um, and the CEO of Johnson Controls and all these big companies had representatives in here. And I was this high schooler standing in front of them. And I was like, hi, guys. I would really like to do this. <laughs> Please allow me to be a part. <laughs> uh, but they took me on, and I actually was on the campaign cabinet a year after, um, helping promote youth involvement initiatives, basically. So that was probably where my biggest speaking experiences and almost the confidence stemmed from. Mm-hmm. So when I won the PY award, I again had What's to give award? philanthropic youth awards. Okay. So they have like a philanthropic five awards in Milwaukee that they give out and they added a youth award that year and they've been doing it every year. It's really cool. You should, mm-hmm. we can put that link in there too. If Definitely. You like. Yeah. Um, but when I accepted the award, I again had to give a speech in front of all these CEOs and high up executives mm-hmm. and I think 
those really prepared me to be okay with mm-hmm. speaking in front of people who are way more qualified than me and just mm-hmm. accept and say, you know, I'm here just sharing my message and that's all it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think it was a big confidence booster for me coming in and presenting at inside meetings every week when we grew to huge members, our final showcase, all leading up to the conference um, that you hosted and the TEDx talk. Cool. And of course, my graduation speech. Well, that's not a small thing. That's, a- <laughs> that's not a small thing. So why don't you? Why don't we? Why don't we run through the process? So you're on campus. Yeah. Next frontier because we knew each other through the makerspace. Yeah. We. I knew that you were overqualified. Aw, uh, Speaking at our event, but but so super grateful that you were able to do that. So how do you end up applying for TED and then also getting to be a graduation speaker? What does that process look like? Right. So for the TED, I actually got an email saying, "Hey, we heard you might be a potentially good speaker. So if any." of you actually asked them to do that. I'd like to know who you are. Um, (laughs) But I was like, yeah, that seems so cool. And that email was attached with an application form where I had to say, here's what I think I would like to talk about given the theme of this year's event. Mm -hmm. And then you send a quick video of just like a summary of what you would like to talk about. And they look at how good are you at speaking and they kind of go through and I guess they select their speakers and I was selected, which was so fun. Um, And then for the graduation component of it, they send out an email. I'm not sure how they find us. That's still a big question mark. To a whole bunch of people that they think had unique experiences on campus or really took advantage of a lot of the cool things that the campus has to offer. Mm -hmm. And they send out an email saying, would you like to be a graduation speaker? If so, come interview with us for 20 minutes. So I went and interviewed with them, um, basically did what I'm doing here, just shared my experiences, things I loved about College of Engineering, things I didn't love about College Mm -hmm. of Engineering. um, And I guess they wanted me to share that for their graduation. Cool. What were the things that you loved about the College of Engineering? Yeah. Well, don't ask me the second question. I don't want to say what I don't like. Don't worry. Don't worry. (laughs) I think... My favorite part about the College of Engineering is just the sheer amount of opportunities Mm -hmm. they provide and Mm -hmm. the research. So I worked with a lot of engineering projects here, and I guess my experience was unique as a biomedical engineer because I had so many design projects to work on. So being here, I was really able to delve into the world of both research and product design and really make an informed decision saying, you know, I love product design, but I like the research-centered things a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I love about the college is the opportunities they provided for me to make that decision. Cool. And and through your speaking experiences, how... what do you think the the most impactful part of this experience of speaking at all of these high profile events and even some of the the less less high profile events like the maybe the academic events or the nonprofit events, et cetera? What have you what's been the biggest takeaway for you from these speaking experiences? I think the biggest takeaway is everyone hears what they want to hear. So when I first started speaking at big venues, I just shared my message as is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I honestly had a lot of mentorship from people saying, that was a great message, here's how it could have been better. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I might have a certain intention of conveying things, but it doesn't always get conveyed that way. And that's one of the biggest things as a speaker that you need to really get a mm-hmm. hold of. Is my message really going to be received the way I'm saying it? Mm-hmm. Am I really saying what I mean to mm-hmm. say? So I think my biggest takeaway is just being so crystal clear. Don't mm-hmm. sugarcoat things. Just say it as it is so people understand the message that you want to convey. Mm. That's actually 
more difficult than you think because mm-hmm. you know me I talk a lot <laughs> and I feel like it's very easy to fluff up your language it's mm-hmm. very easy to just have fun with it mm-hmm. um, but public speaking intrinsically involves so much more thought and preparation mm-hmm. in what and how you're going to convey things do you, do you remember any of the specific feedback that you received yeah um I think one of my biggest things, when I initially did my campaign cabinet presentation at United Way, I had professors who taught speech at universities Mm. that came up and talked to me. And I've always had a very more science and mathy background, so a lot of my presentations come from the standpoint of, here are the facts and research, and here's why we need to do this. Mm -hmm. That's how I speak. And one of the biggest things he said was, you know, if you were in a room full of other academia people, researchers, scientists, and mathematicians, that's exactly how you should do it. But when you're dealing, when you're in the world of nonprofits, that's not your audience. Mm -hmm. Or in the world of anywhere outside of that, that's Mm -hmm. not your audience. And one of the biggest takeaways was he said, a lot of the times, share one story of one person. Go detailed and say, there's this one person and this happened in their life. Mm -hmm. And then say, this happens to so many more people and this is why we need to do it. And that one person, everyone can connect to it. That's how you get that connection between you Mm -hmm. and the audience. And ever since, I've been doing my best to incorporate that um, into whatever message I share. So you, you you go with the emotional and the logical. Exactly. Rather than just the logical, like you sometimes do for the academics. Yes, yes. <laughs> academics. You're going to be doing a lot more logical oh, than yes. MBPH in the coming months. <laughs> yes. That's yeah. wonderful. So, so speaking is a resource to help you get more confident, help you really flesh out your ideas. Absolutely. So maybe we can hear a little bit about that, too. So did you find that speaking like this and preparing these, these presentations help you better flesh out your ideas? or prepare your ideas and get it on paper, et cetera? hundred percent, because I remember when we first had Insights started, we had to give these speeches in front of a huge crowd of people at our kickoff meetings at the final showcase. And in preparation of putting together, this is what Insight is, this is what we do, here's our goals, we realized, hey, even though this is what we want to do, here's where we fall short. And you don't really think about it until mm-hmm. you have to share that message. Mm-hmm. So I think it almost... Putting together speeches serves as a way of self-reflection mm. where you have to think about it and say, okay, here's what I want to say, but have I really done all of that? Mm. Is this real? Mm. And if it's not, how can we better? What are what are the future steps from here? Interesting. Yeah. yeah so public speaking is a really underutilized resource for college students. It, it absolutely is. I think even for graduation, I thought, you know what? It's such a great way to reflect on my time here. And I was like, I have so much going on. Do I really want to do this? But I said, no. Like Having to put together speeches and presentations has been such a great way for me to just constantly reflect on what's going on in life, um, which is why in my graduation speech, I decided to not talk about my story, but rather talk about the collective story of College of Engineers and you, Max. Oh, thank you again. Um, Because I think the best part of College of Engineering is all of us that are a part of it. And um, you really, I don't know, it's just a take that you get from it. Cool. Yeah. Public speaking. Fantastic resource. Awesome. Abundance of opportunity, too. That's true. And I mean, ideally, someday in life, I'd like to be a professor in an academic institution, um, doing research, treating treating patients, and also teaching students. Mm. So I think... 
hopefully all of my public experience, public speaking experiences until then will prepare me to be a good professor, a good um, teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, so Cool. And do you have any recommendations? We can go back and forth with this one. Do you have any yeah. recommendations for how people could get involved and go get public speaking opportunities and access those opportunities? So a lot of my opportunities started with mock trial, which I briefly mentioned before. Back in high school. Back in high okay. school. Could you just explain what mock trial is just so, super briefly? Absolutely. Mock trial is literally a mock scenario of a real-life case court trial. Mm-hmm. So they it's a year-long competition. Every year they come up with a new case, almost as if like what lawyers would be getting. Mm-hmm. It has a bunch of evidence. It misses some evidence. And it has roles for people and things like that. And then you have to put together a case for both the defense and the prosecution. And when you walk into the competition, they say, all right, you're defending today. And you have to get up and defend. Or they're saying, you're prosecuting. You have to get up and prosecute. And you have people playing lawyers. You have people playing the actual subjects and all of that. So, so do you actually have someone like sitting in handcuffs? waiting to be put into jail, <laughs> sitting, on the, sitting on the stand? Everything other than the handcuffs. So okay. we actually do have one of our members act as the subject. They yeah. have to defend themselves, too. Do they have so to wear a jumpsuit, like a prison jumpsuit? Yeah. No? <laughs> no, but we should have done that in hindsight. A little more, a little more RPG. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's good advice. Maybe I'll email my high school team and be like, Guys. Very funny. Do it on Halloween. Yes. <laughs> That's great. All right, so, so mock trial, what else? Yeah, so mock trial was probably my first experience into uh-huh. it. But I think stemming from that, the big advice would be get involved Mm -hmm. in student orgs. A lot of my experiences did stem from student orgs Mm -hmm. and getting involved with things outside of just the classroom. Mm -hmm. So me being at the Makerspace, I met you, got to speak at the Mm -hmm. conference. Inside Wisconsin, just happened to have to present at meetings. Mm -hmm. So there, more public speaking experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And the second component to that is just Google. So when I initially thought... I didn't know much about TEDx until I got to campus, but I was doing a lot of research into them, and I knew them because I was looking at opportunities just on Google. So I think if someone is really determined to get public speaking opportunities, um, go seek for it. Go ask for it. Awesome. And also your academic experience seems like it's been really valuable. Yes. think at conferences, et cetera. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think... The other thing is public speaking opportunities will directly come if you follow something you're passionate mm-hmm. about because people want to hear your stories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so being at research conferences and things like that, I didn't expect to have to present at those, but just because I was so passionate about my research, my PI was like, yeah, why don't you present it? So I think that's another great way to get those opportunities without actually going after them. Cool. And PI is... Pro- uh, Principal, Principal investigator. investigator. Principal investigator. Yes. And just some other ones that I'll toss out there quickly for people who might want to go utilize the public speaking resource. Yeah. Clearly, I need to utilize it a little bit better. I'm slurring my words. But the public speaking resource, uh, business plan competitions are another beautiful yes. one. You go practice. You prepare a pitch. Anyone can enter, and everyone gets to pitch. Yep. Events and showcases like Insight Showcase, beautiful places to go get some public speaking experience, class projects, etc. Yes. So lots of opportunity. Absolutely. And we have Makeathons here. That's Mm -hmm. another one. You got my mind thinking now. Um, So here at the Makerspace, they do a -a Makeathon every year that we started. Mm -hmm. So there, everyone has to give an elevator pitch at Mm -hmm. the end of it. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of competitions are a great way to get public speaking experience. Awesome. Yeah. So public speaking. And check that one off the list. <laughs> cool. All right, cool. So now I'd love to, again, let's transition one more time. Sure. Probably transition a few more times through, this, through the rest of this conversation. Sounds good. But 
you go from public speaking, and now let's let's dive into the MD PhD. Okay. So tell me, so you are passionate about solving problems and interfacing with people while you're solving those problems, right? Specifically within your MD PhD and in the world of biotech and biology and biomedicine and medicine and physiology, etc. What types of problems are you interested in solving? Yeah, I think at this point, what really intrigues me is bringing the amount of engineering technologies that we have that we learn about as engineers to realistically help patients as much as we can. Okay. We really see that already moving forward. There's Biotech is just a huge, booming field. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one of the coolest things I'm really interested in is seeing how can we get even more technologies to help patients? And the second part that part of that would be, can we use these technologies um, to change some of the costs of healthcare and things like that as well? Mm-hmm. So um, I think those, it's, mo- it's not necessarily a specific question, but I think it's my more overarching way that I would really like to integrate biomedical engineering, medicine, and research and bring all of those together of that sorts. Um, cool. Yeah. So, so leveraging the abundance of resources that are engineering resources and engineering technologies, yes, digital yes. technologies. Yeah. So I think one of the best ways to explain that, my senior capstone project that we did. Can you just explain what senior capstone is just for people who might not be aware? Absolutely. So all engineering students have to do this one big project mm-hmm. within their field of engineering mm-hmm. to say, hey, yeah, I can actually do engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, so for that project, my team and I came up with a needle guide that helps it's a it's a very simple use and throw device that helps guide the needle that um, a lot of breast cancer patients before they get a lumpectomy surgery which is where they don't have their entire breast removed but just the tumor Mm -hmm. so before that surgery they go through this pre-operative procedure where a radiologist will use a needle that has a wire in it and leave that wire behind and then that wire is what the surgeons will use to mm-hmm. do the surgery. So that's just a quick background on that. Mm-hmm. So we, de- we developed a guide that's 3D printed, mm-hmm. super cheap, super fast, that makes that needle localization way more effective and a lot more efficient in the sense that right now the procedure takes almost twice as long as the surgery itself. Mm-hmm. So if we cut down that preoperative procedure time, more patients can get treated, and it just lowers the overall anxiety that patients already go through mm-hmm. during their treatment regimen. Mm-hmm. So... The device we came up with, we could have gone gone and have it injection molded. We could have looked into all these complex manufacturing ways, or we could have looked into an electronic device that already does it like a robot all on its own. There's so many ways we could have taken about it, but given where technology is now and the amount of 3D printing and materials like dental which mm-hmm. is biocompatible. You can sterilize it. Um, so there's That's it's like dental forward. resin in the, dental in the resin. Form, form printer. Yes, okay. yes. So we actually decided simple is easier to implement. Mm-hmm. So let's actually use how far we've come. And the form printer is actually has such great resolution for making needle guides. Mm-hmm. So our needle guides now cost $10 to manufacture. And that's mm-hmm. if we do it here at the makerspace. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just one of those cool ways where... You don't necessarily think of 3D printing or prototyping methods as a way to manufacture something for medicine yet, mm-hmm. but maybe in the future it could be done that way. Mm. Interesting. It's just food for thought. 
Interesting. Yeah. So converging your your experience here at the makerspace, working with rapid prototyping technologies, right. with your interest and passion for biomedicine and the medical field. Exactly. Exactly. What are some other examples of technologies that you'd be looking to leverage? Is it all on the how do we solve kind of operational or or infrastructure problems using right. these digital prototyping technologies? Or are there other types of problems that you're interested in tackling? Absolutely. I mean, I think diagnostic technology is probably one of the most prevalent fields I can think of there. So my engineering project, um, a great pro- a great example of a great idea, but needs a lot more work and maybe different thought process, um, a great learning experience. My project was trying to use acoustic sound as an imaging modality of the head for mm-hmm. patients that have uh, tinnitus. So like ringing in their ears, we think that there's a subset of it that is objective, meaning that it's not hallucinations, there's actually problems that are causing it. And we thought, well, if there's a sound in there, can we use that as a way to image it? Because a lot of the times, those patients and their pathologies don't really show up on our conventional imaging modalities right now. So backing up, so you think the, the hypothesis is, just so just to make sure that I'm understanding, yeah. the hypothesis is, because I'm not as smart as you are with, when it comes <laughs> to this bio stuff, but... but the hypothesis is that you have ringing in your ears, and that ringing is caused by an actual vibration in your brain, and yes. that causes acoustics, yep. which you can then pick up using sonar or something. Yeah, or microphones, actually. Okay. Yeah. Um, that was our big idea. I can't dive too much into how we went about solving it for NDA purposes, mm-hmm. but um, what actually ended up happening is very it's very difficult to... As much as this idea is sound and you're like, oh, yeah, sure, it makes perfect sense on paper and from a physics standpoint, there's a lot more about the head we don't necessarily understand. Yeah, a lot. A lot, a lot. <laughs> and so tracking something like that, and a lot of the times these pathologies are like within a small portion of your ear area or they're in such intricate proportions and you have to make oversimplifications to develop this device. But... Given our imaging modalities and given our ultrasound technology and so much more that we have right now, maybe we're much closer to being able to characterize the brain, the acoustics of the brain, and all those background information that you would need to make such an idea work. So right now, it's not necessarily a diagnostic modality that can be implemented, Mm -hmm. but if we leverage on all the other advancements that we're currently making, maybe someday they'll we can put two and two together and Definitely. actually make something. There are a bunch of cool companies who are working on brain imaging. Exactly. Lower cost using different yes. modalities. Is that the right terminology? Sure, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and also just characterizing it to begin with, not just characterizing its mm-hmm. electrical conduction and things like that, but also characterizing its physical properties. Yeah, portable MRIs are, are, are a up-and-coming area. Yes. Which are pretty cool. So you mentioned NDAs. Yeah. So are you working on a company around this technology? Are you working for a company, for nope. a professor? Um, a client. Uh, I don't even know if I can say his name because people can look up his patent. Don't have to say his name. Yeah, but but currently filing a patent around this technology. Okay, and is this, you said that this is through your capstone or through an independent research program? This is through an independent research program. Um, I worked with a researcher at the College of Engineering. And are you getting credit for this research program? Are you getting paid? How does that work? I was actually part of uh, the Burby Walsh Prototype Pathway Scholarship. Hmm. So, um, Burby Walsh. They paid for me to work on this project. So they actually fund undergrad projects like these, which is really cool. Oh, very cool. Yeah. What's their specialty in longevity and healthcare and and diagnostics? Just medical prototyping. Medical prototyping. Yes. So a lot of it involves uh, projects that are reasonable for undergrads to take on, but also give them experience in 
exploring different medical devices. So this was the Burby Walsh yes. undergraduate prototyping scholarship. I don't think undergraduate is part of the name, but okay. It, yeah. Okay, so we can put that in the show notes too. Absolutely. And I guess this is an, another decent transition for us to move in, into another part of the MD-PhD pathway, but the biomedical engineering program. Yes. So you told us a little bit about what you're passionate about in, in medicine, using some of these technologies to tackle medical problems. Right. Uh, and driving down costs, making things more efficient, etc. So what did the biomedical program look like at Wisconsin? Why did you choose biomedicine? And how do you feel that that in, impacted your ability to actually go pursue this passion that you have. Absolutely. So here, the way BME is structured, biomedical engineering, um, is we have capstone, not capstone projects, but rather design projects every Mm -hmm. year. So sophomore year, both semesters, we do design projects. Junior year, we do design projects. Senior year, we do senior year, we do design projects. And all of these projects are in collaboration with a client, usually either a patient that needs something specific for their need, or a physician or a researcher that has an idea that centered around some part of medicine. It could be materials, it could be mechanics, it could be electronics, but something related to medicine in general. But the cool component of this is when we pick our projects, we all, so a little bit of a background, as BMEs, we all pick a tract. So mine is bioinstrumentation with a heavy focus on image processing and signal processing and things like that. But you can pick biomaterials, you can pick tissue engineering, you can pick mechanics. So there's a lot of different tracks you can pick, but a lot of these projects that are proposed involve all of these tracks together. So every year, even though you have classes in electrical engineering, you have classes that are more specialized you have to take, the design project is a way of connecting all of those different fields together. And you without even realizing it, gain exposure to so many more mm-hmm. biomedical engineering fields than what you really came in to learn for. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of that's been the coolest component of taking or studying biomedical engineering at UW Madison. I mean, I didn't know much SolidWorks, mechanical properties, or any of our materials to begin with until I started on my BME projects, which mm-hmm. is completely nothing to do with electronics or imaging. It is completely all mechanics um, and materials. So my brother's coming here next year, and he's thinking about electrical engineering versus biomedical engineering. And I keep telling him the biomedical engineering program is really unique in how much hands-on interdisciplinary project experience that you guys have every year of your program. Right. Really interesting. So is it the same project every year? Nope. So junior year and senior year, you can have the same project if you think it's going to go somewhere. So we actually ended up doing a, um, a study within the clinics and got institutional review board approved for that study. So we stuck with two years to test it. For the breast cancer needle. Yes, for the needle, needle guide project. But you can choose to do a different project every year. Amazing. So it looks like the biomedical engineering program has really set you up to be hyper successful. And we were, we were talking offline a little bit, and you mentioned that you think that that your ability to think creatively and innovatively about problems has really been refined through that program. Absolutely. Could you maybe provide like a little bit more insight in how the program really cultivated that innovative spirit? Absolutely. So within BME, you're constantly probe to think about rapid prototyping situations or problem solving where it's not just that you're trained to do one really complex thing or algorithm, but rather you have to think about 
what are all of the resources available to me right now and what is the best way to solve this problem? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of problem-solving opportunities that I think really helps you become, one, better at creative thinking, like you said, but also think about the big picture ideas, right? Mm -hmm. It's a skill to say, okay, here is this big goal that I have. Where can I start? And I think that's, that's how I would describe what BME trains you to really be able to do and be able to think of versus some of the other engineering majors might make you really good at being able to solve the nitty gritty of how to implement an idea. And within BME, you get some exposure to those uh, math and the really complex quote unquote engineering as well. But BME, I think, falls more on the idea of big picture than it does on the details. Amazing. Awesome. So we covered BME. We covered your MD, PhD. Yes. And I'd love to end, and then we'll go into a few rapid-fire questions for you. Sure. So where do you see yourself in 20 years after you get this MD, PhD? After it takes you 75 decades <laughs> to get your MD, PhD. 76 decades, actually. 76 decades. Oh, my God. I would um, be long dead by then. <laughs> um, I think the most honest answer is... I don't know. Okay. Um, I think I'm exploring multiple different research mm-hmm. fields within MD-PhD, and that'll probably guide where I end up for mm-hmm. the most part. But I think in the most idealized scenario, um, as I was mentioning before, I would love to have that very hardcore research-heavy component, be able to actually treat patients and bring whatever I'm studying and research back mm-hmm. to help the patients, and really be able to teach the next generation as well. Cool. Yeah. So let's move into some rapid-fire questions. Sure. Uh, these are going to be some fun rapid-fire questions, so we'll start simple. So if, if you had to pick out the three books that have influenced your life the most that you really want to give to somebody else or that you may have gifted to somebody else already sure. to help them on their journey, what would those books be? Um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Dale Carnegie? Cor- Dale Carnegie. When did you read that? Um, honestly, I go back and read it very often. Oh, amazing. So uh, it's really good to go back and say, oh, I really have the scenario I'm dealing with. There's a lot of advice in that book. Okay. So I've, I've read it a couple different times. Um, I don't know. I can't remember the author for this, but it's either Who Moved Your Cheese or Who Moved My Cheese. Did you read that because you came to Wisconsin? No, no. Actually, <laughs> it's a really short read. It probably will take you like an hour and a half to get through the entire book. It's a okay. short book, but it explains... Have you heard of the concept of growth mindset? Uh-huh. It, it is the perfect example of it. It talks about a story of four mice running through a maze trying to find cheese. Okay. But within that, it talks about different personalities within these mice and how one was able to move on from running out of cheese was the, versus the other was stuck. And the idea of how you as a person can start thinking about change um, and pivoting in life and things like that. It's a, it's a really nice book. I've got to ask because it's you. Were these yeah. like actual mice in an actual experiment or were these like Mickey Mouse mice in a cartoon? Uh the way they described it, it was actual mice, but I don't think it was in an experiment. Okay, so, so it wasn't like they had a maze yes. they were testing. No, no. <laughs> this is not a research study at all. <laughs> no, they just use these mice as an example to explain okay. um, something cool. that people can relate to. Amazing. Yes. And, and the third one? If you have a third one, you don't have to have a third one. Oh, God. It doesn't have to just be books. It can be any, any sort of audio, video, speech, talk, etc. I think if we're talking audio, video, too, they're, it's called entrepreneurship podcast okay uh it's a really really good podcast they bring on it's kind of like what you're doing Mm -hmm. um they bring on a lot of entrepreneurs and the unique thing i like about it is they talk about how people move past failures Mm -hmm. and they really pick a theme like one big quality Mm -hmm. so the idea of 
being a leader that empowers everyone. How do you really go about doing that? How do you make sure everyone's voice is being heard? Mm -hmm. So they pick like very small topics and bring in people to talk about it. And I think a lot of those are really useful topics and skills uh, for anyone that wants to be at the interface of people. Cool. And what, who's that podcast by? Uh, again, I have no idea. Right, we, can, we, can, we can pull that information. <laughs> yes, we can pull that in. Yes. Cool. And if you had to give advice, if let's say you had to put advice on a billboard somewhere, what would you put on the billboard? Sometimes you choose, but most of the time life chooses for you. And don't wow. be afraid. Wow, I like that. Yes. Where'd you hear that one? Or did you come up with that yourself? No, my dad. Uh, a lot of the times... I mean, like everything, I, I never in my life until I got to undergrad thought I would go into an MD-PhD program. So I think a lot of the times life has picked opportunities and doors for me that were way better and bigger than what I could have dreamed of or what I knew growing up. Mm-hmm. So just being open to possibilities has been, has been really important and just embracing the change, embracing newness. Embracing newness. Em- embracing like newness, like yes. It. And what is your favorite failure? If you have a favorite failure, I think the most influential failure was getting rejected from a whole bunch of internships, um, and I think it really made me reflect back on it and say, "Well, why did that happen? Where did I go wrong?" And I think it ultimately came down to the fact that I wasn't speaking passionately about going into industry. That just wasn't for me, and I'm sure everyone else could see through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it put me on track to where I'm headed in life. But I think. The, the best feelings to express that is a little bit of embarrassment and self-doubt and a lot of that really turned into something good later on. But it was a very important failure in my life for me to get through. There are no failures. There are only new opportunities. Absolutely. Awesome. Yes. Cool. And if you had to give advice to, say, an incoming college freshman for one, one, one piece of advice. You don't have to go through the gambit, but they can yeah. listen to the rest of the episode. But what, what, what single piece of advice would you give them that you think would have the most impact on their ability to have a hyper-productive college experience, undergraduate experience? And for, for intensive purposes, let's say that they're smart, driven, funny, right. sociable, etc. The funny can get them in trouble. Okay. <laughs> um, I think the biggest piece of advice would be to try as many things as you can. Freshman year, I think I was all over the board. Um, halfway through, I was starting inside. I was a part of the Internet of Things lab, working on a couple, like a project there. Um, at some point, I think I even checked out some pre-med clubs. I did swing dancing. So I anything Ooh. that would seemed cool, I made time to just try it out. And I was like, well, if I didn't like it, well, at least I know I don't like it. Um, or it kind of exposed me to here's what's available, and that's why I said, we need insight. There, there's nothing like it, and we actually have a need for it. Mm-hmm. So it helps you identify areas of opportunities in a sense as well. So I think just don't be afraid. Try a whole bunch of stuff. They always say pick one and so you can become a leader in that, mm-hmm. and that's absolutely correct. You at some point should pick, mm-hmm. but I think make an informed decision. Try as many things as you physically can and then say, all right, this is what I like. Cool. So I view you as a leader in our student entrepreneurial community. Oh, thank you. I mean, you've started Insight. You've started a bunch of a bunch of really impactful initiatives. So, what what advice would you maybe have for the entrepreneur or the executive or the the Fortune 500 company, Fortune 100 company that's looking to tap into the creative, innovative cloud 
that is college students and the human capital of, of say, 20 million college students across the U.S., what advice would you have for them for how to get involved and how to tap into that, that human capital cloud? I think the most influential way would be to be a mentor. Mm-hmm. Because I think if I ended up going into industry, I would want to work for Design Concepts or a company like that where the people from that company were mentors to me both in my project and in life in general. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the best ways to form personal connections and also understand the mindset that people are in when they're in college. What are they looking for? And you can include your sales pitch in there as you need, as you see fit. But I think we always hold a special place in our heart for mentors, and that creates almost like company loyalty. If I have a really good mentor, I would be more than happy to work with them. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Gopika, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, you for having any, me. any final thoughts that you'd like to share? Where, where can people find you, etc.? Yeah. Well, um, I'm on LinkedIn, so mm-hmm. type in Gopika Santhal Kumar. You'll find me. We'll put uh, a link in the show notes, too. Sounds good. Uh, Facebook. But other than that, I'm not a huge social media person. Okay. At some point, maybe I'll get a website. Stay tuned. Okay. <laughs> um, but honestly, feel free to shoot me an email. I'll put that on the link, too, mm-hmm. I guess. What's your email? Just We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, G-O-P-S 97 at gmail.com. Okay. So just feel free to reach out. Short and sweet. I like it. Yes. Awesome. Well, go, Pika. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate your time. Appreciate you having me on. We'll, we'll be in touch. Sounds good. Thanks, Max. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Next Frontier Podcast. If you like this content, please head over to nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. It's nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. We have out of this world content coming your way over the next few months. Hope that you enjoy and stay tuned.